in the last month, we did a Twitch stream that was going down a very, very long meme that looked like an iceberg separated into, I think, seven different tiers. And on each of these tiers, there was maybe on the low end, 20, on the high end, 40 of these niche ideologies. Among them was xenofeminism, among a number of other things that were bizarre political trivia and memes. (laughs) So I think that's the place that artists can very specifically occupy, the node that connects these two spheres of academia, institutional expertise, offering a level of meaningful interpretation to otherwise silly internet content. We're right in the middle of that Venn diagram right now. So Helen, I'm super stoked to have you visit our reading group. So why don't we dive in? How are you this evening? Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I think it's really interesting what you're saying about art as this interface between an academic culture and a para-academic culture or a wider popular culture as well. I think it's a question I get asked quite a lot is about what the role of art is in terms of the kind of theory or Mm. philosophy that I make. And it's a question I struggle to articulate a meaningful answer to because you very quickly lapse into foggy thinking (laughs) where it's sort of like, well, there's some kind of alchemical process where one form of discourse is transmuted into another and all of this stuff. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it in that way and articulate what art can do and how it can be woven into the kind of theoretical projects that xenofeminism seeks to do. I think in the worst case scenario, I just resort to it is literally the building in which the conversation can take place. And that Mm -hmm. if you're going around to random socialist meetings, you're meeting in this dilapidated community center or sometimes literally a church. And there's also art museums and these big fortress institutions that sometimes host really meaningful, compelling conversations. So I think that is something important and unique in today's landscape where seemingly all of discourse is just subject to these market forces and terrible incentive structures of social media that are evaporating (laughs) rational debate and everything else. There's a kind of surplus, isn't there, to the kind of work that arts institutions can do, because Whenever I go into those spaces, I'm very aware that there is a process of Mm. extraction happening where actually what they're looking for is the sheen and the shininess and the kudos Mm. that comes with the new. And it's not always like an in-depth engagement at an institutional level. And of course, an institution is made up of its individuals, but there's somehow a gap between what specific people want to do and what the institution is capable of doing and how it has to frame it. But you're right in terms of the being this sort of well-funded gathering place for different kinds of ideas. There is this surplus, this possibility that comes from bringing people together in spaces that can't ever really be fully contained within the ambitions of institutions. There's these possibilities mm. that leak out. And Laboria Kibonics formed at a summer school called Emancipation as Navigation at the Hack of A in Berlin. And that was set up with institutional priorities in mind, but this sort of unexpected thing came out of it at the same time. So I think you're quite right. Yeah, there are unique projects that cannot be spawned anywhere else. And art is a very generative and fertile ground for that. Mm -hmm. So if we can segue into our main topic for this evening, we have our members from the reading group who have done like a year's worth of a syllabus, a lot of things leading up to this. And I think most of them now finished the book. We're having our final meeting this Sunday. But I wonder for the extended listenership, if you would give just a brief introduction to xenofeminism and your thinking in the book for people who have not participated in the reading group and are otherwise not familiar with your work. Yeah, absolutely. So myself and my colleagues in the working group, the Boreakibonics, wrote a document that we called Xenofeminism, a Politics for Alienation. And we sort of started that process in 2014. 
and it was published in English in 2015. And that's become known now as the, the Zeno Feminist Manifesto, although that wasn't a title that we gave to it. I think something quite interesting is that we have this very polemical document that we didn't label as a manifesto. And then I sometimes like to sort of position that against Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, which is like actually a very reasonable, carefully articulated argument that she does frame as a manifesto. So there's different kind of approaches going on about whether or not one wishes to claim that label and why. It's basically an attempt to articulate a feminism that is fit for an era of complexity, globality and technology to develop a gender politics that fits within that. And then I published a monograph called Xenofeminism in 2018, which was really my attempt to fully understand what we'd done with the manifesto. (laughs) (laughs) The process of working collaboratively is a really interesting one, but you've got people from a lot of different kind of disciplines. So there were six of us who wrote it with sort of related philosophical reference points, but with different sort of levels and depths of understanding and all of this stuff. So there were parts of the manifesto that whilst I felt like, yeah, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm behind this. I needed to really sit down and sort of reckon with and try and get a better sense of what, what were we actually saying? And because the kind of question that you just asked, which is essentially what is xenofeminism, was one that I was frequently being asked and that I found I was quite ill-equipped to answer. So I set out to kind of pose that question to myself with the book. And the answer that I came up with is that xenofeminism is a techno-materialist, anti-naturalist, gender abolitionist form of feminism. So it articulates its project for me, so my version, and of course there are six of us and means essentially six different versions of what xenofeminism is within the collective, and then many, many more depending on what readers take from it. And we always say that we want xenofeminism to be a platform, not a blueprint. So it's about trying to create the space for all of these multiple xenofeminisms to emerge, rather than trying to dictate what uh, technologically literate feminism should look like in the 21st century. It's about space making and, you know, something like sort of capacity enabling rather than sort of pinning something down while still trying to advance something of substance. And that's the challenge, I think, where what you want to do is to have a positive thesis, to really be trying to articulate something. Otherwise, you really let yourself off the hook by saying, oh, well, it's whatever you want it to be. Let's have a thousand different versions of what xenofeminism is. And that's a, a critique that I've leveled at some forms of cyber feminism before. So the old boys network, for example, always said, refused to define cyber feminism. And they developed this 100 antitheses of cyber feminism, where they basically had a big long list of things, a collectively sourced list of what cyber feminism wasn't. So, you know, it's not boring toys for boring boys. It's not era 101. It's not a banana. And I find that quite a frustrating approach because of its fundamental refusal to advance something, to say something. And I, I get it because it's a very risky process to try and actually articulate something because you open yourself up to critique straight away. You know, you invite hostility when you try to advance new norms or make normative suggestions. But it's also part of a commitment to taking the project seriously is attempting to do that. So this is what I, sitting down with the manifesto, really trying to engage with it, really trying to flesh out some of the things that we could only gesture towards loosely. These were the three criteria that kind of emerged for me. My feeling is that a lot has happened since 2018. And certainly if you're writing a book and and carrying forward ideas that were some of them initially conceived in 2014, so much has happened in the last few years. This is part of a later question I wanted to get to, but maybe it's just appropriate to dive into now. But 
in general, and specifically in reference to the work that we do, which is kind of a early detection of emergent trends on social media that then become political currents. And we've become, to some degree, a resource for journalists who are trying to report and contextualize on these things, which is, I think, again, an argument for what artists can specifically do and contextualize and, and position and discourse. But in general, my feeling is that we're in a period of ideological reshuffling, a period of historical reshuffling. You start to hear things like the Great Reset, that even among like the Davos class, that there is a general consensus that things are really not working. And there's all these different competing theses of why that is specifically right now. But what I specifically like about your writing, specifically in xenofeminism, is that it folds in all of those, I don't want to say contradictions. They're not contradictions, but it folds in all of these ideas that are often not grouped together, that if you were to have a techno-materialist framework for feminism, this would in many cases be exclusive of trans people. And that obviously is not a sufficiently complex frame, but nonetheless, it is like a discursive hazard to fall into these reactionary pits. What I'm curious to do now in building this educational platform is to find ideas that can effectively cut across all of the discursive terrain on the current instantiation of the left, of the center, and of the right. And if you were to look at a, uh, a map of the Google Trends, it would not be like quantitatively significant right now, but understanding the contradictions that are about to rupture, that this would become something in a cohesive, concise, clear worldview that can just directly cut across all of those things. So you really grabbed me with the chemicals in the water turning the frogs gay. <laughs> that, was, uh, <laughs> that really hit yeah, pretty hard. <laughs> there's been a lot of that recently. There was an there's, article in The Guardian just a yes. few weeks ago by Erin Brockovich, I think, which was about people having smaller penises. Our penises are shrinking. It's and this real. was somehow presented as being a self-evidently bad thing. <laughs> 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 it's like, well, I think that there are far more pressing concerns in terms of the circulation of toxicants than the shrinking of penises. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not top of my list. I think the carcinogenic qualities <laughs> would probably be up there for me, rather than this attempt to sort of engage in this sort of eco-sexual mm-hmm. boundary piecing of how bodies are supposed to be. It's basically using this very ableist and cisnormative and heteronormative kind of framework to as, a, as, as this sort of Trojan horse for an environmental message. So you're using existing prejudices, existing biases and smuggling them in via this sort of widely socially acceptable framework. And that's basically the point that I make about reproductive futurism as well, this idea that we're constantly mm-hmm. having to frame everything we do in terms of the children. Like, well, you know, what does this mean for children? And I think that that's a very limited framework in the way that it pushes actually adults out of the field of concern but also how it produces this very weird version of what a child is, because I use child with a capital C, this metaphysically inflated phantom of the child who is not a real a child in any way, sense or form, because there's no advocacy for protecting actual children, providing resources to actual children, making actual children's lives better. It's this, the child as a sort of cipher or symbol or totem of the future, and this is a future which all of this discourse about the child is campaigning to be an extended version of the present. You know, it's the extension of the present indefinitely, the shutting down of mutational possibilities wherever possible to create this framework where by protecting the children, we are protecting a version of the future, which is the exact replication of the same. 
And the point I'm making in the book, which I think is true of these, these kind of these other normative discourses, is that, well, I understand why people rely on these because they work, you know. You're using this framework, you're piggybacking on it, you're infiltrating it and being like, okay, well, these are an accepted set of values which are being compromised by certain forces, ecological forces, social forces, whatever. So we're using that to get the message across. But the risk is that in doing that, you are enforcing these frameworks that in other discourses we would probably want to dismantle, you know. Right. We think we want to break apart and actually lead into this wider transformation. So that's the point when the tiny alligator penises and the lesbian herring gulls who pop up in the book. This is, I think, a, a later topic that I wanted to get to, but there's something in here about specifically the way that narratives propagate online. And so there's a certain clarity that as people who've spent a good portion of their lives in academia, there's a level of rigorous conversation that is not allowed for through mass media, certainly not through social media. And I'm following you consistently, but I also feel the need to push back that I did not consent to having my body perforated by phthalates. And I take the idea of self-shaping, to use your language for it, I take that seriously. And so I feel like the type of discursive disintermediation we're trying to do is I'm glad to see the Shanna Swan work in The Guardian, because otherwise the people who feel that modernity is making me ill, modernity is transforming my body in a way that if I had self-design, I wouldn't choose to do, absent the emotional narratives of being emasculated and, and all of that stuff. I understand, but I'm trying to play a little bit of devil's advocate here that failure to counter message on those topics is effectively sending people to the right that we're seeing quantitatively play out and play out in an electoral sense as well through the rise of right wing populism. So I should give you the background for this, specifically in the context of the U.S., there's been such pushback from the legacy media class to dismiss anything that, say, for example, a right-wing wackadoo like Alex Jones would say that uh, there's chemicals in the water turning the frogs gay, et cetera, et cetera. As silly and stupid as that sounds, when the legacy liberal democratic media denies that, it makes him look right and it makes all of the other really, truly insane and dangerous shit he says look possibly correct, as the neoliberal rot and the compromised institutions that we have now continue to carry out their functioning, but are like less and less trustworthy, right? For, for decades upon decades before even social media. Let me throw it to you in a question, if I can do that. <laughs> there should be a clarity that we as say, academics or some sort of an intellectual vanguard that ostensibly would be in charge of building the new post-work Red Vienna or what have you, that we should be extremely clear on these things, but how do we control for and manage a building reactionary Luddism that seems to be ubiquitous and, and rising throughout mass media that people have really negative interactions with technology, negative interactions with biomedical procedures and healthcare in general. How do you acculture people to these ideas? How do you roll them out and propagate at a large scale? So first of all, I don't think that the comments that you're making are pushing back at all because I view them as being completely in accordance with what's advanced in xenofeminism. So it's not the case that what I am trying to suggest at all is that, well, the discourses around the mutational forces in terms of sort of the circulation of toxicants, we should just like relax and go like, hey, baby, let's mutate in a xenofeminist way. Let's see right, what happens, man. Like, there's shit in the water. Come on. Like, <laughs> who knows? 
that's what we'll become, you know, as we develop a sort of a third eye, like the fish. You know, I actually point in the text as well to the fact that a lot of trans thinkers have pointed out mm-hmm. to the fact that, you know, you need this proactive hormonal politics, not just in terms of thinking about the bodily autonomy of trans people and the, the risks that come with ingesting hormones as part of transition or sort of a wider gender experimentation, but also because they're already circulating. They're already everywhere. They're already in the water. You know, right. there's already things hormonal and otherwise that we are ingesting as part of our everyday lives. And the suggestion that you can extract yourself from that and move to a position of purity you see this in the idea of sort of clean eating or mm. clean living or whatever, this idea that, you know, you just sort of find a way out of being part of the economy of toxicants. You can't do that. It's, it's impossible to extract yourself because they're, they're literally everywhere and in everything. And even if you can sort of lessen the ways in which you come into contact with things like pesticides and so on, that's not an accessible thing for everybody. You know, that depends upon having not least the headspace to do the investigative work to figure out where these things are most potent, how you withdraw yourself from them. It's just not, at this stage, a generalizable possibility of exodus from the toxin economy. You're in it, necessarily, we're already here, which is why we need a sort of proactive position on it and we need to reckon with it. So in Xenofeminist, it's much more about, well, how are we framing our resistance to that? And why is the queer viewed as both the cause and the result of pollution and pollutants. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of talk in eco-queer stuff about public sex. It's one of the examples I give in the text. So public sex is, is always viewed as sort of a littering hazard and, a, you know, it's a sort of biohazard and condoms are everywhere. And this process of public sex is seen as this polluting force. And that is both social in as much as this idea that it's a threat to children, you know, something that they will see and mimic and therefore it will infect the social fabric somehow but also literal, like, well, it's, it's a site of waste, it's a site of mess, it's something that needs to be contained. It is, queer sex in itself is a biohazard that has to go through some kind of process of infection control that comes through pushing that into a very private sphere. But all forms of queer intimacy as well are supposed to be self-contained in the private sphere to minimise social and literal pollution. So, and I think that's a very problematic place to start and then this other stuff that we've been talking about where yes then anything that's sort of queer becomes the outcome of these processes of pollution as well where yes the trans people are because of the circulation of pollutants non-normative bodies are because of the circulation of pollutants and then you know the alex jones stuff about actually yes you know your sexuality is a result of the pollutants that you consume that whole framework is one where i don't think you can concede to it I don't think you can say, okay, well, you've got legitimate concerns that the frogs are turning gay and that actually our mutable sexualities are being transformed by forces beyond our control. For me, this is basically what I fall back on a lot as being what I take to be axiomatic in my work. What is the foundation is ideas of bodily autonomy and trying to articulate what bodily autonomy means in, on a both an individual and collective level. And that's what I think it comes back to all of the time, like understanding how one can exert bodily autonomy, how we can have the, the meaningful freedom to do that, you know, what are the social forces that restrict it or enable it, and pulling that in. So understanding that what we would like is to have a hormonal politics where what we choose to put into our bodies is, as far as possible, a choice, and it's something that we negotiate, but at the same time where we sit with the fact that 
our agency is never absolute. We're already situated in this sort of ecology of forces that we don't control. And it's about maximizing our agency within that ecology rather than pretending mm. that we have absolute sovereignty over ourselves or others. So seeking to maximize the way that we can control our own bodies within a space that is fundamentally restrictive. I want to echo this kind of superstition or this metaphysical concept of something being a pollutant that we use language like a nation being a super polluter and that mm -hmm. there's like a cleanliness of the developed nations, which is almost akin to like a racial hygiene that's emerging now. And, and very much so what you had said, but I think there's something in here of like within the cohesive framework of terraforming that I think you use this frame anthropoforming. Was that, yeah, okay, so there's a finite material limit to the way that we can design ourselves. We're not just logging into an MMO and picking out the most wacky characters with blue wings and, and whatever. Like there is, yeah. <laughs> there is some limit as, you know, maybe in the distant future we can have all those things. But yeah, you have to embrace it and you have to intentionally steer it. You made this point about this idea of going back to zero. <laughs> like, yes. you know, we're going yes. to have a reboot, we're going to have a restart. Well, we're not. We're going to build from where we are. And, and what's zero? A zero to go to? Well, there is no zero and there is no way back because it's all about building from where we are. And that's always been my interpretation of accelerationism, which I think has sat somewhat at odds with the way it has been received as this kind of techno-fascistic, super-masculinist, like, yeah, you know, like, accelerate the contradiction, which is obviously, um, you know, <laughs> Nick and Alex would always say that that's not really what they were going for at all, and that what they were accelerating is the idea that you could accelerate through the current moment through capitalism mm -hmm. in the name of building something better. But yeah, I mean, I've always viewed it as this more reparative framework than that, mm. which actually says you can't roll back. You can't go backwards. You can't imagine that there is a, a new starting point. Actually, you're already in the mess. You're already knee deep in shit, neck deep in shit. And you have to work with what you have. You are here. And then, you know, trying to make things better with the resources that you have to hand. And actually understanding that seems to me to be part of an accelerationist politics more than this idea of pushing through for a new start, a new agenda. It's like, well, we're here. Like, we have to use the resources that we have. I mean, this relates to, I think, the use of repurposing as a methodology in the book. It comes up a lot and a lot again and again, this idea of, of repurposing technologies, repurposing social systems. I think accelerationism is this acknowledgement that you never start nowhere. You're always repurposing social, ideological, material resources. You can never just be a hacker or an engineer. You always have to be both those things simultaneously. So striving to design better systems, but also understanding that part of that is about subverting and finding the exploits in the system in which you're already situated. Speaking of art institutions as places that have good conversations, we were watching your talk from, I mean, this is many years ago now, from Fredericianum, Inhuman Symposium was the name of the yeah. talk. Rapidly summarizing this, thinking of hyperemployment, thinking of Siri, thinking of email assistance, and this illuminating, although in case it wasn't <laughs> excruciatingly obvious who was the secretary before, now it's become explicitly obvious where the feminine voice is literally part of the developer's toolkit. I think the way that you positioned it was that this forces the question and becomes some type of an escape vector. 
that it forces it into a public conversation. And I guess the, the question I want to ask is, if that represents for you some type of an opportunity, what is the opportunity? Like, what do we seize onto? What becomes a demand? What becomes the agent of change? Or like, how do you push through that into the future that you want? I think, first of all, it's very obviously a very constrained moment of opportunity. I remember mm-hmm. some people reading that article as being like, oh, you know, super optimistic. And I was like, it's pages and pages of me talking about a problem. And then like <laughs> a paragraph, of, yeah, but I guess there's this. It doesn't have a truly optimistic spirit, I think. But it does make the point that it's about denaturalization. This idea that there are certain things get smuggled into our reality as inevitabilities because there is this whole framework of thinking around them that we never pre-exist. We're all in this kind of system of roles and understandings and stereotypes that we can't fully extract ourselves from. But this process whereby actions, viewpoints, capacities, preferences become embedded within technologies and those technologies become explicitly gendered, it creates this sort of moment of schism where it's like, okay, well, because it is overtly a choice to give Siri a feminine voice or to design Cortana around a figure from Halo, these were choices, these were made. And so they were made on the basis of a certain degree of deliberation or maybe even sort of like implicit assumption making where a set of gendered norms become embedded into these technologies. And because it is explicitly a choice, that creates this moment of reflection because it's denaturalized. It's like, okay, well, somebody has chosen to assign this set of technical labor to a device with with some kind of feminized avatar. Why? And then that, I think, opens up a door to thinking what through that denaturalization process, through this idea of, well, why has this been gendered in this way? I think that then can in its own small way, help to chip away at this idea that what it was representing to start with was somehow natural. But actually, not just Mm. the the assignment of gender to these sort of technical forms of work, but actually the fundamental gender division of labour itself is about assigning work to particular bodies on the one hand, but also sections around bodies more fundamentally. Endnotes has this piece on gender, which makes the point that actually the disadvantaging of women is tethered to the continued circulation of ideas about maternity and reproductive labour. But they are tethered to feminised subjects in general, regardless of whether they will have children, regardless of whether they want children, regardless of whether they're cis or trans, they get rolled into this general legacy of the disadvantaging of particular people because of their associations with reproductive labour and the way that that limits or shapes their role in the labour market. So it kind of mm-hmm. all, gets, all gets rolled together. So that's the argument that the piece comes to at the end, which is that we're gendering these technologies and we're using gender, as you say, part of the developer's toolkit. That process of recognising that helps us to unsettle the ideas that gender was fundamental to start with and start thinking about, well, is gender itself a workplace technology? Is it a work function? To what extent is it a work function? And then how can we start to challenge that without then lapsing into reinforcing gender binaries through funneling everything into these existing gender paradigms where, you know, oh, well, certain people 
are good at this kind of work and certain people are good at this kind of work. And there's something fundamental about that rather than the product of years and years and years and years and years of socialization and being already having your mindset shaped about what gender means, essentially. There is this narrow window of opportunity, but then there's something that also necessarily comes along with it that the technology itself, the thing that enables, say, Reddit support groups, just people communicating through the infrastructure of the internet, that's the same thing that enables nano trading algorithms. You're not like on a level playing field. Maybe the slope is literally just declining rates of profit where there's these narrow windows of possibility that open up but then you're also precariatizing labor progressively throughout it. And periodically, this is explosive and disastrous. This is about repurposing as well, right? Yeah. Where you can't suggest that the forms of digital connectedness that are facilitated through the infrastructure of the internet are an unqualified good. Of course, they are not. <laughs> We've seen many of the ways in which net culture has been shaped for the worst. We know, mm. we're very aware of the, the downsides of this. But again, I think it's that reparative viewpoint, which is sort of like, well, where are we now? What do we have at our disposal? We are within a particular kind of technical infrastructure that shapes where we are and shapes what's possible. Just because it's being used for ends that we find undesirable, there is no way where we can just step out of that. I mean, we're increasingly saying, like, I don't think there can be any suggestion that the answer to the problems of the internet is exodus from the internet. It's impossible more and more so with the pandemic, but it's fundamental to the way so many things work. You know, in global North countries like the UK, like the US, it's impossible to navigate fundamental systems without the internet. The internet is a basic infrastructure. If you want to get an appointment at the doctor, you need increasingly to be able yeah. to navigate these things. If you want to claim benefits, you have to be able to understand how a government gateway works. You have to have a government gateway password. You have to be able to log on. You have to be able to do this. And so increasingly, it's fundamental to the most basic things. <laughs> if you want to query a bank transaction, more and more, you need to have the ability to get onto the app, to do this, to do that. So it is the most fundamental form of infrastructure now. And it's not the case that you can simply say, well, the internet is used for undesirable ends, so do we want it? Well, it's not a question of do we want it, because to some extent we already have it. It's more about since it's here, what is salvageable? What do we need to do to try and make it a tool rather than something that is a burden, you know? And it's impossible to imagine, and this is something I agree on with the daily plants of the world, that it's a disruptive force fundamentally. We can think about how we might channel it in a productive direction or how we can specifically use it. But as with so many things, you can repurpose it one way, but it could be repurposed again in another. So, you know, we see this with Whatever we advance, if we advance a position, if we develop a tactic on the left, there's nothing to say that that won't be seized upon and then repurposed by somebody else. It's just this endless cycle of trying to think about what we can use. And it's never absolute. It's never absolutely like, this is a tool for good. I've got a quote from Luca Fraser, my colleague in the book, which is, she's asked, can the master's tools ever dismantle the master's house? And she's like, yes, that's what tools do. <laughs> tools and designs, they can be used against their purposes. They can always be turned towards new ends. You know, that is the character of tools. I don't mean one thing. And I think that that's fundamentally true. And that can be dispiriting if we're looking at it from one sense, which is that whatever we try and do, whatever tools we develop, somebody else can seize them and use them. 
But then the other side of that is whatever tools other people are developing. As long as we're sort of cognizant of how they are emerging, we can find ways to tap into that and use them as well. So understanding that what we're doing is always repurposing. It's always a form of hacking. Any form of engineering we're seeking to engage in is already a form of hacking. And it all comes back to the sort of classic Marxist idea that man makes his own history but doesn't do it in conditions of his own choosing. Part of the work that we've tried to do in the last year plus in doing this project is hearkening back to that idea that we're at some period where there's a, a decisive shift, that the balance has massively in the neoliberal era shifted towards capital, a global predominant capital that is now everywhere from which there is no exit, there's no exit from tech, there's no opting out of a system that extends everywhere. But simultaneously, Specifically in the context of anthropogenic climate change, there is, I think, a dubious connection that people make between climate collapse and a discrediting of the Enlightenment project in general. That's a little bit abstract, so I'll try and give a firm example, that during the Australian wildfires, the amount of carbon that was released into the atmosphere, the amount of smoke, was described as being, quote, beyond computation that the total processing power of all of the computers, of all the machines and intelligence on earth could not predict what this quote, quote, natural release of materials, chemicals into the atmosphere was going to do. And this can very easily lapse into a type of emergent, irrational belief system of theocracy, of primitivism, of right-wing populism and superstitional concepts. And I feel like as people who are on the left, who want to put forward like a positive image of the future that involves technology using a techno-materialist lens, that the burden is on us to defend the Enlightenment as an incomplete project, as not being just this one direct through line of missionaries to colonial expansion, to resource extraction, and now a fire in the middle of the ocean that's been burning for the last week. So how do we walk that tightrope and how do we prevent people from falling prey to all of these resurgent, irrational belief systems that are moving from the fray into the mainstream in the last few years? That's a really excellent question and one that comes back fundamentally to repurposing and understanding that the enlightenment for all of the masculinist, racist values that became so entangled with it that now conceptually people find it impossible to disentangle it. Actually, there's always something in there that we can repurpose. And this idea that things don't have to be ideologically pure to be a resource. This is a real problem on the left where you actually look to, oh, this is a bad thing. This has been used for bad purposes. People have taken mm -hmm. these ideas and done bad things with them. And therefore, they become untouchable. We can't use this now. Whereas you don't really see that on the right, where it's like, this has been used for purposes that are not my own, therefore I'm not going to touch it. It's more like, oh, I can do something with this, I'm going to seize it, I'm going to do something with it. There are questions to be asked about whether a return to an Enlightenment framing is possible or desirable just strategically, because given that it does come with all of this baggage attached to it, do you want to use the language of Enlightenment? to talk about Enlightenment values, or is there, a, I guess, a PR move, which is like, okay, there might be things that we understand as being part of the Enlightenment that we need to reframe. But I think you've also touched upon something that 
has been very clear to me for a while, which is this desire to position reason and rationality as being these sort of patriarchal, masculinist, limited values or ideas against something which is perhaps more encompassing, which is this form of like emotional response or affective response or engaging with the irrational or getting in touch with the magical or all of this stuff. I think we've been forced to confront the fact that that itself is not a pure tool to be used by the left because we've seen the circulation of irrationality, of magical thinking, of the use of emotion. That's now so characteristic of the right. Definitely, that's been a big shift since the manifesto was drafted, where we got a lot of questions early on about, well, what's the role of emotion here? Why do you hate emotion? You know, and actually having to make the point that just because something is emotional doesn't mean it's good. Just because somehow in the binary coding of values, you've got reason on the one hand, which is seen as being masculinist, and then emotion on the other, which is seen as being feminine. That doesn't mean that one is inherently good or one is inherently bad, because there's nothing inherently good about about the feminine or the masculine you know they are poles of understanding which have been overcoded with values there's nothing fundamental about them and so understanding that emotion doesn't belong to us emotion doesn't belong to feminists emotion is being used all the time for different purposes and is being weaponized for different purposes and that's become particularly clear in recent years and i think that that is one way of countering this idea that enlightenment values are necessarily bad well, what does that leave you then? Okay, you want to move away from enlightenment values. What's the alternative? Well, <laughs> look at it. <laughs> look, at, look at what the alternative is. It can be repurposed yeah. by our enemies. So perhaps what we need is to not understand these things as being part of a binary, but understanding that very often there are forms of emotion which are themselves rational. Very often emotion is a reasonable response. And it has been a tool for dismissing particularly black feminist voices, this idea of, well, anger somehow invalidates your point of view. Well, I can't hear your point when you're angry because blah, blah, blah. Actually, you need to start understanding that actually anger is sometimes a very reasonable response to an unreasonable world. So yes, to break down the binaries between these terms, understanding that these things can always be leveraged from different positions. And I guess it's just the necessity of foregrounding the politics of it the whole time. Mm. So you Mm. can't have a tool, you can't have a framework, you can't have a methodology, you can't have a perspective that is in and of itself right for your politics. You code these technologies, you've got the possibility of tailoring these things to your perspective. They don't have inherent values in themselves. They're never neutral, you know, and this is a point that I try and make in the book, which is that technology is not fundamentally a great thing, it's not fundamentally a horrible thing, and it isn't neutral. It's never neutral because it's already been designed with a set of possibilities in mind. But what we need to understand is that technologies on both the literal level of devices and on a sort of a wider level of social technologies are always being taken up by their users. They're always being turned to unexpected ends all the time. We see this in the history of material devices. The microwave was designed as a brown good to be sold alongside hi-fis to young men, (laughs) bachelors who wanted a high-tech thing. And actually it was taken and repurposed by women and housewives. Then it became something different in that process. The telephone is another great example about how it was designed expressly for business purposes, designed to mean men in their offices do work more efficiently. And the way that was completely derailed from a very sort of anti-work perspective by women and housewives who used it for chit-chat expressly against efficiency, against that sort of purpose of facilitating labour and became 
this sort of social technology, a technology of gossip in its most positive sense. And I think that's true, not just of devices. That's a handy example. But it's true of everything. It has this capacity to be reused, repurposed. And that needs to be the methodology of a xenofeminist perspective, I think. I think that is the latent claim in the book. But fundamentally, it comes up again and again and again, this idea of, well, how do we turn systems that we didn't design, that we don't control, against their uses? And how is that process mm. of subverting mm. these technologies? It has to be the starting point for designing these things. And that's why I keep coming back to this idea of hacking and engineering. You're never a pure engineer because you're always starting from the resources that pre-exist you and trying to turn them to new purposes in the process of designing. There's nothing absolutely new in the sense of being untethered from existing technomaterial conditions. You're always within these technomaterial conditions. And that is the accelerationist and a feminist repurposeful, reparative politics that I'm seeking to advance. 